Okay, we're back. Yay. Let's talk about something non-controversial like the death penalty. Mm. Okay, so obviously I think you see why I paired this case with the section on what is the what is good, right? The different ways of thinking about what is good. And and here we have um a well, a deeply divisive issue that America has been struggling with for a long time. Yep. Where the issue is it's partly how do you interpret the Constitution, but partly partly, you know, how do you think of this social practice? Like how do you know whether it's the right thing to do or not? And you have people on each side of this, you know, who are vociferously arguing that the right thing here to do is X or the right thing here to do is Y. And, and all those arguments may be fine. I mean, as arguments in themselves, but like, how do you know which set of arguments to privilege? How do you know which set of arguments is consistent with the constitution when the constitution says something as vague as there shall be no cruel and unusual punishments, right? Well, that seems to call for some kind of moral judgment, but what kind of moral judgment? Yeah, part of what's happening in the in the case is debates about reasons for applying constitutional provisions in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And that's separate from the question about reasons for having particular kinds of criminal punishments or not. Right. Which you can imagine the second one being a question that you could equally discuss in the context of a legislative debate in the context of a governor deciding whether to commute a sentence right. uh, or commute a, a, a group of sentences. Um, the first question is, is, seems uniquely judicial, mm-hmm. right? The, about how to apply in a, in a real dispute, how to a, debates about reasons for applying constitutional language in particular ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is... Uh... The death. One of the reasons the death penalty is fraught is that it has spawned all kind. I mean, it, it spawns all kinds of litigation because people are literally fighting for their lives, mm. and you have lots of lawyering effort going into this question, and a lot of like built up jurisprudence because you got a lot of case law with a lot of like careful decision making, uh, you know, on this one issue, and it really, in a way, has taken a lot of the oxygen out of other kind of also very important criminal issues, and it's yeah. actually one of my criticisms of the death penalty even aside from whether you think it's moral to apply or whether you think we can actually do it fairly, all of these criticisms that we'll talk about a little bit, um, it just, it takes away, because it is such a, uh, an intense punishment, like literally intense punishment, it, like I said, it sucks out all the oxygen. Like there's, you know, we, we, we aren't, there's not as much uh, effort and, and space to argue about whether a 20 year sentence for a like a um, a nighttime burglary of a, an auto body shop is an appropriate sentence. I mean, those arguments do happen, but there are lots and lots of people in jail on on plea bargains and other things, and for fairly long sentences and sentences and, and, and housed in 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 certain ways, conditions of confinement that you might disagree with, and uh, and certainly a lot of that stuff is litigated. But the death penalty does seem to me to take up a hugely disproportionate amount of lawyering effort. I don't know how to quantify that, but it is a you know having conducted Supreme Court discussion groups with students like mm. this, it keeps coming up over and over again right. to the detriment, I think, of other criminal justice issues. Yeah. Well, so one thing I should say right off the bat, right, is that this is a case from 1972 striking down Georgia's death penalty law. And at the same time, striking down virtually every death penalty law in the, in the country. And so for four years after this, there was no death penalty in the United States. But I didn't want to leave the students with the impression that this is a landmark Supreme Court decision 
that abolished the death penalty. I think everybody, everybody listening knows that we do have the death penalty in many states in the United States, right. including, including Georgia. So I just wanted to give a little bit more context for what happened after the decision in this case. Sure. Um, as you know, Joe, I think this is a good case to, to talk about with the students because it kind of highlights some of the things that we were talking about with with uh, uh, with morality and and how to and how to gauge it. But it is not the final word by any stretch on on the status of the death penalty. So I think a couple things to note. First of all, um, b- before this case, the number of executions um, had begun to grow quite rapidly, beginning in the mid eighteen hundreds or so in the United States spiking at about 180 per year, which is not that many, but that's how, you know, there were, there were, you know, that there were that many, but just before World War II. And then after World War II, the number of executions in the United States starts to fall precipitously. So that by by the time uh, this case comes around, there are fewer than 50 per year. So we're we're at a time when this case is decided of a, of, of a rapidly decreasing instance of es- of execution in the United States. So you're talking about um you're talking about when, when you say executions in this pre-World War II, what are you describing? I'm I'm death penalty in so, the United States. So a, a properly conducted trial, right. I'm not talking about extrajudicial lynchings or okay. or it's, it questionable sounded, wartime. <laughs> it sounded like you were not including lynchings. No. No, um, de- definitely not. No, I I I'm only talking about judicially prescribed uh, um, executions, you know, instances of judicially mandated death penalties. Okay. So basic point is that when this case comes around, the death penalty seems to be waning, right? In a lot of ways, and we'll talk about this later in the course, that this, this idea that what the Supreme Court often does is kind of ratify existing social movements, whether it's approval of gay marriage or disapproval of um, anti-interracial marriage laws or even Brown against board. Like the Supreme Court comes in, usually not as a leader, but kind of pushing along a social movement, which has already had a lot of success. Right. And, and so th- th- that Maybe context... Pr- pruning an outlier or something like that. But yeah. yeah. So I think that context is kind of important. And in, even in the case, as you, as you read, they talk about how there have been abolition movements which have, have waxed and waned. And, yeah. and, and there's a sense that they need a little push here, right, in order to get this done for good. So there's this case, striking down the death penalty in 1972. And after it, states reenacted the death penalty through various statutes meant to cure specific problems that the court mentioned. Obviously, reading some of these opinions, it was clear that the court wouldn't, you know, there were members of the court which wouldn't approve the death penalty under any circumstances. Right. But there seemed to be an opening, and states took advantage of it. And, and they did And think, freakish arbitrariness might be one way to describe <laughs> right. uh, the, 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 the defect uh, that they perceived uh, in, in Furman uh, that a state might try to eliminate. And, and so some of the things that they did were that they, they kind of replicated kind of best practices that they kind of picked up from hints in, the, in, in, this, in this opinion. So they would separate the guilt and punishment phase. So there'd be one phase where the jury is asked to decide whether the defendant is guilty, and then a completely separate phase only after determining guilt to determine whether the death penalty should be imposed. So this is the guilt and, and, and sentencing phase that people are probably familiar with. And at that sentencing phase, the statutes would provide that the defendant could put on mitigating evidence, like, you know, um, uh, uh, although I am guilty of the crime, uh, I'm intellectually disabled, or I had a bad childhood, or I was provoked in this way, what, whatever the jury should consider that may make it think morally that the death penalty is not appropriate in that case. Importantly, the state would be obliged to provide aggravating evidence, aggravating factors right. that would help 
guide judgment and decision making to, to say this is these, these are, are factors that consider. make it especially right. uh, appropriate for death to be the, the punishment. And a lot of these statutes did away with the idea of a mandatory death penalty, that if you find these things, you have to impose the death penalty. And that was key. So, you know, you never have to impose, no jury ever has to impose the death penalty under these statutes, or at least many of these statutes, at least the ones that were upheld. There were, the, there were some legislatures that, that sort of went that way, right? Mm-hmm. That in the, in the wave of reenactments of death penalties, some states said, the, the way we're going to get rid of arbitrariness is, is to go for its opposite, which is mandatoriness. Right. Right. It's not a crazy solution if you're not sure precisely what was bothering the court right. and to what degree, right? You might yeah. say, ah, if we make sure that everyone who's convicted of this crime is executed, mm-hmm. uh, we've definitely eliminated arbitrariness, at least at the punishment phase. But you can't do that. Right. You can't do that. You gotta... we, we learn later that yeah. that's not acceptable. So this new wave of statutes is upheld in 1976, again in Georgia, in this case, yeah. Greg against Georgia, uh, which, which upholds these kinds of statutes. Um, and then there are a series of decisions cutting back on the death penalty after it comes in. So there's, uh, again, Coker against Georgia, another Georgia case in 1977, saying that there, is, uh, there can't be a death penalty for raping an adult. So uh, rape of an adult cannot be punished with a death penalty. And there is finally in... And that's, an, that's not an arbitrariness decision, to, uh, I think. That's, no. a, that's, a, uh, that's a proportionality decision. It's a proportionality decision, decision right? And, and, then, and then that's bolstered in 2008, more, much more recently with this case, Kennedy against Louisiana, which says that you can't get the death penalty for anything but a homicide, right? So we kind of get rid of, and that was a, that was actually a child rape case. So that's kind of most egregious non-homicide case that you can imagine. The court says, no, that's, uh, you can't, you can't oppose the death penalty for that. Again, under this kind of proportionality kind of reasoning. Um, and then there are some other cases which cut back on the kinds of people who, uh, to whom the death penalty can be administered. So there's this case Atkins in 2002 and Roper in 2005, and together they hold that you can't impose the death penalty on someone who is, in, who is intellectually disabled um, and, or for people who are minors at the time of their offense. So if you were 16 when you committed a, a capital crime, you can't, be, can't have the, the uh, death penalty imposed. I just wanted to say one more thing before we can kind of get into the case and talk about how it, you know, your reactions to it, Joe, and how to think about the way that morality and and theories of the good are playing out in thinking about retribution and deterrence and, and incapacitation and rehabilitation. Um, that w- what we've seen since the reinstitution of the death penalty are at times individual justices kind of standing up and saying, you know what, this is enough. Uh, um, I'm going to, I will now dissent from every death penalty uh, case in the future. And a lot of this happens after the judges have been on the bench for a long time and they've dealt with, they've been on, um, they, they've been up until midnight waiting to hear, for, you know, they've just been through this a bunch and people who have been on the, uh, clerk, clerk on the court have like, you know, have told me, and you've probably heard these same stories of what it's like to be re- the responsible clerk waiting to hear, waiting for last minute motions, uh, in a death penalty jurisdiction and having to make that decision about whether this person dies tonight. And, and apparently this like weighs on, on justices quite a bit as you say, well, why this case? Why not this other case? And so some, some examples are um, uh, Justice Blackman early on. Um, in, well, I'd say early on, but in 1994, in a case Collins against Collins, basically saying that the death penalty can't be, equal, can't be fairly and equally applied. And he's kind of come to this conclusion, can't be fairly and equally applied based on 
his own experience. He cites all kinds of things showing that, you know, why does this person get death and that person doesn't get death? That there's no way to treat like cases alike in this death. Now, was he on the court in Furman? He was a dissenter in Furman. And, yeah, and so, so part of what he talks about in Callens is that he has changed his mind. Yeah. And interestingly, Scalia wrote a concurrence excoriating him yeah, yeah, for yeah. having picked it. What he said was a, was a case of, you know, why are you dissent? Why did you choose this case to dissent? Scalia said, this is a somewhat milder capital crime, even though it is still a capital crime. Like, why not pick this other case that has these much more horrific facts? And if you pick this other case um, where this, this kind of very brutal rape and murder had occurred, like it would be much harder for you to stand up and say that we shouldn't have the death penalty because of unfairness, et cetera. Ironically, the case that Scalia cites, the defendant in that case was later found to be actually innocent Yeah, right through DNA. I think it was DNA evidence in that case, but it was one of these actual innocence claims. So Scalia cited the, 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 bar, the kind of the barbarous nature of a particular crime in a case where the person who was convicted of that crime was actually innocent. So it's kind of a, well, let's just call that interesting. Um, and then Stevens in a case Bays against Rees in 2008. And then most recently, Breyer and, and Ginsburg in this case, Glossop in 2015, have argued that the death penalty should be reexamined for its unreliability, its arbitrariness, delays, and kind of its increasing regionality, its increasing rarity uh, as more states abolish the death penalty. So again, we're going through another one of these phases where more states are doing it. Okay, so all that is a way of kind of giving some background to the state of death penalty jurisprudence mm. in the United States, which I think is important that we not just read this one case and think that we've seen everything. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this is a fraught topic, but what was your general reaction to reading this uh, case again, Joe? Did the arguments that you saw in, this, in these opinions, did they recapitulate the more recent arguments that you've seen about the death penalty, did it feel to you like a familiar kind of back and forth that we've just been having for decades or did it seem like a throwback in any way? I mean, how did you encounter this case on, on, on reading it again? Are, are these just the inevitable arguments that people who favor and don't favor the death penalty will make when they're talking in kind of the, a judicial legal register rather than a political one? Just to some degree, there, there were a number of arguments that, that I, that sound very familiar and you, you see today. I think some of the case is, ha- is happening in a way that doesn't happen anymore, which is the basic idea about should the, should the cruel and unusual punishment clause in the constitution uh, be a serious constraint yeah. on the use of the death penalty or not. Let me just read that text because I think as we read cases applying constitutional text to particular cases, always, you know, I don't always have it printed in the textbook for the students. I probably should, but, you know, you guys can Google. Make sure you read the constitutional text because the the court doesn't always, like in the excerpts that I provide, don't always provide the full text. And I think it's important to, you know, even if you're not a textualist, originalist, topics that we'll talk about later in the course, that you actually do read the text and you understand what's written there. So here, the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution um, passed very shortly after the adoption of the Constitution as part of the Bill of Rights says, Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. And it was clear early on that this did not apply to the states. Like this was only a restriction on on, on the federal government. But then we get the Civil War, and then we get the Civil War amendments, including the 14th Amendment, which has the effect of making some of the Bill of Rights applicable against the states, including this provision. And so we're not going to get into the complexity of how that happens and why just yet. We'll do a little bit of that later in the course. But just know that the 14th Amendment, 
which requires that states give all people in their jurisdiction due process of law before they deprive them of life, liberty, or property. It also requires them to give privileges and immunities to the uh, citizens of their states, just like would uh, be accorded to citizens of the United States. That very complicated as to how those two inter- how those two provisions interact. But just know that that those provisions together, or the due process clause alone in the Fourteenth Amendment adopted after the Civil War, has had the effect of applying this Eighth Amendment to the uh, to the states. So no state now can impose a cruel and unusual punishment. All right. So that that is the that's the text. Or require an excessive bail. Or impose an right. excessive fine. That's right. And so I, I think it's important to start with text because not only there, but that, that due process clause that I mentioned, which is in the Fifth Amendment and in the Fourteenth Amendment, right? It says that no state shall deprive uh, any person in its jurisdiction of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It says life, right? The person who wrote the, the people who wrote the Constitution understood that the state could take life, but that if it wanted to do it, it had to do it under particular circumstances affording sure. due process. So that has always been a textual hook, which has been a bar to claiming that somehow the Constitution uh, prohibited the imposition of the death penalty. And so it's kind of right out of the gates. If you're trying to say it's the Constitution which requires us to strike down the death penalty writ large, you run into the you run into text which appears to say that a state can of course can take life. It's right there in the Constitution. What do you do with that, Joe? How do you that that's not the end of it though, is it? No, but it's a serious point. I, I, at least I think it is. Uh, it, 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 it's certainly much harder to get to the conclusion that our constitution prohibits the imposition of the death penalty, uh, than it would be if you were looking at a constitution that says, uh, no state shall impose the penalty of death. That 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 constitutional provision would be very easy to apply. That would be easy to apply. Um, and and there are constitutions that have provisions like that. So uh, it, it greatly complicates matters. Although I can that, see that we're looking at a document that's yeah. more than 200 years old. And when written, death was certainly a, a punishment imposed, uh, for a range of crimes. Uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, that complicates the analysis for sure. It's interesting. Cause I, I could easily see 200 years hence a, a, a living constitutionalist argument that the constitution, which says no state shall impose, uh, the penalty of death being used as a as a basis for argument against life in prison without parole because as you probably know a lot of advocates are now characterizing life in prison without the possibility of parole as death in prison it's a sentence of death in prison mm. like a kind of civil death right? right um interestingly in this opinion they they very much distinguish the status of prisoners from the status of people who are killed right that even prisoners are rights bearing entities Right. Yes. And that that one of the things that's different about death, right, is it's not only the death of a person physically, it's also the death of a rights bearing entity. Right. It's the 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 end of the possibility of the exercise of of rights, which is totally unlike even the prisoner who is in prison without the possibility of parole. Uh, Which is a funny way of saying like you're never totally without the possibility. We mean legally without the possibility of parole. Yeah. So how, how do we want to connect? I don't know that we want to go through all of these opinions. We're going to do that in class. We'll kind of step through the arguments and, and see what the students think. And I want to hear. Because there are examples of every one of the kinds of reasons. Right. And every one of the kind of approaches. Well, certainly the first two. It, it may be that virtue ethics or, or, or the sort of Aristotelian uh, mm-hmm. morality as an activity, right? That that frame isn't co- quite on the surface in the way that the others are. Right. The other two. Right. But the other two are virtually on every page. 
So before we, let's just talk about the virtue ethics for just a second. Um, And I just want to hint at it right now. But one of the things that you hear from people working in the system in in death penalty litigation and in carrying out death penalties is the way that it kind of, the kinds of decisions they have to make stick with them, right? This is like wardens in in prisons carrying Mm -hmm. out death penalties. Um, Judges who, again, have to wait up till midnight and make decisions at the last minute. Um, Lawyers who are working on this case fighting for life or for victims, you know, depending on which side of this you're on. It's a very intense process. And everyone plays a different role in the system. And, And so one thing you might think about is how participation in a system involving the death penalty either, uh, well, how, how does that contribute or detract from the virtues that we, want to co- that we want to cultivate in people involved in our criminal justice system, whether lawyers, wardens, judges, or otherwise? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can imagine studies, papers, even of ultimately litigation, which kind of turns on the way that, that people in the system are harmed or perhaps you know, show heroism by participation in the system in some way. Is that too vague? No. Do you know what I mean? Not yet, but... <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is such an enormous... This, this is very challenging, because yeah. this is such an enormous topic. There is a reason why there are entire courses at law schools on this subject. Yeah. Right? Habeas corpus and the death penalty. You could have an entire course... You have a year-long course right. at a law school on this topic, and you would not be covering all of it. Uh, which is true of almost every area of law. Like yes. We could have an entire although course. Not, or, although most of them are not on their face about the state killing its own, some of its citizens. Right. But there are, you know, there, there are courses in the law of war. There are, you could have you an entire course in you just, bet. you could have an entire course, not just on tort law, which right. of course there are. But I'm just trying slip, to answer you, your question, on, on, do on I know sli- what you're referring to yet? Not yeah. really, because it's not, it, you, because you got to be more specific for me to get it. Yeah. I'm a little dense. This is a big topic. <laughs> it is a huge topic. Uh, so, so what I'm suggesting is that if, without regard to how you would actually decide things, someone who had fully internalized the virtue ethics approach to law, meaning that they were whatever other theories they used to decide how to decide things, Mm -hmm. they were very concerned with cultivating in participants in the system and in citizens who were governed under the system in cultivating virtues like honesty, courage, um, uh, well-being, practical wisdom, theoretical wisdom, and cultivating these virtues, right? And they would be mindful that death penalty practice takes a particular kind of toll on people mm-hmm. and asks, but, but, you know, again, without right. saying how this would come down, like right. even if, even if you're, what you're trying to do is vindicate the interests of victims and victims' families who have been harmed in particularly egregious ways, like there's a, there's a kind of harm, you know, there's a kind of role that you're playing there, right? And so I, I don't want to get into it, one, because I'm not really qualified to do it. I mean, I, I would want to do a lot of studies to yeah. understand the role of advocates and judges and wardens and everything else. But, but I think that the virtue ethics approach has, may have something to say here. That's sure. all I'm saying. You bet. Uh, but I don't think it's on the surface in the same way that, that, um, that we see deontology and that we see utilitarianism here. And in general, and this maps on to a very basic distinction uh, in terms of punishment that law students make in the very first year when they study criminal law. Like, why are we punishing? Like, why are we doing this? And you, one reason you might punish and like, why you might impose the death penalty is that you want to deter. 
You either want specifically to deter this person from committing a crime again in the future, from harming in the future. You might want to deter generally, meaning that what you want to do is punish this person so that other people know that they might also be punished if they do something similar. And people who know that this punishment is out there will avoid doing that thing, right? This is the same. And of course, you could be doing both of those at once. Right. Right. The same punishment could both specifically and generally deter. In fact, it might be bad to go to the death penalty as an example of specific deterrence. <laughs> I mean, it's it, that well, no, has, they, they do that in this case, though, right? Because they talk yeah. about the danger of, uh, of, of, of harming people in prison or if you ultimately get out again, right? So that, that is one justification that's given that the way specifically that is the yeah. ultimate specific deterrence. I just think it, it's sort of the it's being too cute. No. The phrase is the meaning of the phrase is distorted. I think it's a it's 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 the ultimate in incapacitance. Well, okay, we'll get to that. So, which is a separate yeah. ground for punishment. Incapacitation, which is correct, happens to be a ground that I kind of favor. Um, uh, not in this, maybe not through the death penalty, but I think it it makes some theoretical sense. But I wanted to say just intuitively that you can grasp this these kind of different modes of in, of deterrence if you just think about you know, how, how you drive on the highway. Um, and if you know that cops patrol a certain area and, and enforce the speed limit very strictly, right. And you know that they, you, you've heard that other people have gotten tickets that will deter you from exceeding the speed limit. Sure. Um, you may be more careful than you would in other places, right. Sure. But also if you yourself have gotten a ticket somewhere, (laughs) you, right. I mean, even if you've gotten a ticket in somewhere else, you might be more careful for a little while that, you know, you're going to be mindful of the fact that you can get a ticket at any time. So, so I think without, like you said, without going all the way to the death penalty, we can see that deterrence operates. Like the law is a, is in part a bundle of incentives we have to modify our behavior. Right. Right. But that's not the only theory, right? We also have, well, you just referred to it, incapacitation, which is not really referred to in this case separately from deterrence, but this idea that some people are very dangerous and maybe dangerous in specific ways. And one thing law should aim to do is to incapacitate their ability to cause further harm. Right. And so life in prison without parole is an example of the kind of ultimate, other than the death penalty, incapacitation. Uh, there's still the risk of, of harms caused in prison. And you do see that argued in, in death penalty cases that we, we have to be concerned that this person will cause harms to others in, in prison. And even if you isolate them, there's still possibility, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's incapacitation. There's also rehabilitation, right? That the purpose of prison and the purpose of other punishments should be to change the person's behavior, to make them go from this harm-causing uh, propensity to the uh, to a socially productive kind of propensity, right? And you can mix that with rehabilitation, or you can mix the rehabilitation with the incapacitation in the sense of, you know, you but by by imprisoning the person. You're taking the person who has just committed that sort of offense mm-hmm. uh, and who you might therefore think could very well commit that offense again yeah, uh, and say, okay, we're not going to let you do that. And while we're here preventing you from doing that, we're going to try to <laughs> turn you into a person who won't, who won't do it. Right. Right. Because let's make good use of the time. You're here. Yeah. So we know you're not out there criming. Well, <laughs> can we get you not to be such a crimer? So when you leave... It's we're all better off, mm-hmm. you and everyone else. And this case, though, really turns on another kind of theory, though, right? The theory of retribution, that a valid social purpose of punishment is what well, you might you might hear it called retributive. And whether that means vengeance or something else, it is a theory that says the person should get what they deserve. So there's a it's a moral dessert theory, right? That that 
that the appropriate punishment is is tied to the person's crime in such a way that we can say as a as a moral matter that they deserve the punishment that they've got. And you can see very clearly on the surface how like deterrence and capacitation that these map onto a kind of utilitarian style of thinking that what we should be tr- aiming at is is punishing in a way that will give us better consequences in the future. Rehabilitation same way. Whereas this retribution idea is about well no there's a right and wrong that has been done and there is a right and a wrong in response to that thing, right? And the punishment should be rightly tied to the wrong that was committed. Now there is a way to and I think some of the uh some of the opinion stuff Justice Powell's dissent it does some of this. Uh there's a way to link back the the retribution uh, rationale mm-hmm. to some consequentialist reasoning by suggesting a variation N- not that it is important that the the wrong be be corrected by doing a, the right thing, right? Or, or the person gets their just desserts. Right. right? Uh, it's important that the people who have been wronged see somebody getting just desserts. That we should vindicate their taste for retribution. Well, but, and, that, and that the reason why that might be good to do is because the failure to do it might suggest to that person they should take matters into their own hands. Right. So it's a way to prevent a regime of self-help, which could be far more destructive and chaotic than the state having taken unto itself the right Right. to, you know, apprehend, determine and punish uh, as a way to try to keep more control as that stuff works itself out. Yeah, I'm glad that you say that because it, it I think it's important for the students. I mean, one of the things that you can do with these theories is to identify different strains of thinking. And also to make your own arguments. Like if you see someone making a utilitarian argument, that's maybe an opportunity to combat it with a deontological argument, right? And the argument that you just made, right, is a way of combating a purely like utilitarian deterrence-driven argument with an argument for retribution, which is itself your utilitarian, right? So your argument that um, by giving the people the retribution that they want, we actually decrease the incidence of social violence because people will not engage in self-help and won't engage in you know, uh, violence on their own to make no, things I'm right actually, is, is a way of delivering better social consequences. Yeah. And I'm not sure actually that the, that the retribution, uh, argument that I just made that, that, I, that I think it really can go as far as I've just made it in the sense that I, I think you can make the argument about providing some retribution as a way to relieve pressure in the system and prevent self, resort to self-help. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that that tells you just what kind of retribution you should visit on the offender, right? It could be that in the mix of of these different consequential considerations, you say, look, uh, am I doing what you, the the aggrieved party, might do yourself, right? Um, you know, throw them leg first into a wood chipper, mm. Um no Fargo reference there. Yeah. Um, well, although that was head first, um, but, <laughs> oh, but, but, but rather say uh, we can give you some of that, but retribution, right. A long prison term, but we can't give you all of it because that's not the only consideration we're weighing. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I'm saying that's a variation on a consequentialist take on retribution. I'm not sure ultimately what I would find most persuasive. Um, 
But you could, yeah, you could say, look, with the retribution the state needs to give to prevent self-help is as close an approximation to what that person would do him or herself and, and as the aggrieved yeah. party. But an, an argument here is that that the almost the entire purpose of law right is 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 it's a system of mutual restraint it's a system of trying to be better together than we would be individually quite true right yeah. and that the very purpose of the constitution and this clause is is mindful of that individual desire for retribution like like any of us would be if a member of our family were were, right. were killed in one of these horrific ways like you would like it would be impossible i think for for almost anyone emotionally not to to wish for uh vengeance right and, um yeah. Uh, even if intellectually you could suppress that, right? It'd be, it's just too much to ask in, in a way, an individual to act that way. But together we can right, suppress vengeance and do something which is, you know, perhaps what we would all want to do if we could act ideally under a deontological theory or even yeah. a utilitarian theory. And in that way, you're, you're, you're sort of getting very deep to the, and, and to the foundation of the, of the clause itself. I mean, one, one really interesting thing you might ask after having looked at this case and reflected on the Eighth Amendment, is what does it mean? What, what is the morality of a constitutional provision that puts certain punishments off limits? Even if you don't think that the death penalty is put off limits by the cruel and unusual punishments clause, mm-hmm. it, is, it seems to be trying to do something. Yeah. Right? It's trying to put some punishments off limits right. to the state. What kind of thing is that? To say there are some punishments the state shouldn't be able to visit on people who live there and who commit crimes. That's a very interesting thing to try to do, right? And it's, of course, it does it three times. Bail, a certain bails are put off limit, certain fines are put off limit, certain punishments are put off limit. Right. That's fascinating. What, what, what is one's theory about a legislature and what it might try to do that you're worried about? such that you need to say, no, you can't do that. And what, what kind of power are you giving to courts in particular yeah. to act as restraints? We already know from Marbury that the court has decided, well, they've given us at least the power to interpret this clause and to provide a limit, right? But how much of a limit and in what way and under what condition? Are we, are we empowering the courts to be historians and archaeologists to figure out like, yeah, we said cruel and unusual, but that was just shorthand for a whole list of things that we were like too lazy to write down. <laughs> uh, or are we asking them to apply like, our sense of what was cruel and unusual to situations we couldn't have imagined, but that we want them to apply our sense? Are we asking them to apply their contemporary sense of what is cruel and unusual? No, the contrast with the word excessive suggests, because clearly if the framers had wanted to simply rule out excessive punishments, they seem to know how to say that. They said it twice in the same sentence before, right? So they don't seem to be doing merely that. They, They used a different phrase to try to capture a different idea. It's not just excessive punishments that are ruled out. It's this thing called cruel and unusual punishments. What's that about, right? So it's not just disproportion. It, what else it, might it be? So fascinating. I, these yeah. are fascinating, very difficult questions. I think we're going to have to leave it there, but, um, it, which is frustrating because this case is so rich and, mm. and our class will be, you know, a, a lot of what we'll do in class is, is going to be exploring the particular opinions in the case how they map onto these theories, what the students think of them, what they think of the idea of proportionality review in general. But one other exercise that I'd like for you guys listening to, to undergo here is, is to ask yourself, you know, in your, and it doesn't matter what your view of the death penalty is, whether strongly pro, strongly anti, or undecided, somewhere in between, that doesn't matter. But I want you introspectively just to think to yourself, like, what, what is my, 
what generates this feeling that I have about the death penalty? Is it is it what I think the Constitution means? Is it what I think should happen? And and if it's what I think should happen, and I want you to consult that too as well, regardless of the Constitution, is it because of a sense of like a moral principle that you have or several moral principles that you're kind of interpolating and thinking about how they operate together? Or is it like news that you've read about innocent people being on death row and you're worried about the consequences of that or you're worried about the arbitrariness of it? Like you were you were persuaded by maybe what you read here about the rarity of the imposition of the punishment. You think maybe it can't be administered that way or or you're really worried that we need to preserve it for the worst possible cases because there just are some cases where that is the only right punishment. And and how do you determine those cases? So I just want you to think introspectively about your reasons for hesitating about the death penalty, embracing it, reacting strongly against it? Are those reasons, are they deontological? Are they just moral reasons that you can't reduce to anything? Are they religiously inspired? Or do you have some kind of utilitarian, more logical argument for this? Um, there's no right answer to this. <laughs> you know, if, if there were, we, you know, we could all, you know, just point out our errors. I mean, people have different views about the rightness and wrongness of our interventions into one another's lives. And the death penalty is the ultimate intervention into the life of another, in a way. And what justifies that or fails to justify that? That's what I want you to think about deeply. And we'll pick up there with our conversation.